a very special episode this week. One of the best players of all time. Sports Australia's Hall of Fame member. Two-time FIH International Player of the Year. FIH Women's Coach of the Year. Dual Olympic and World Cup gold medal holder. Four times Champions Trophy gold medalist. An Australian champion and head coach of the sublime Netherlands national women's team. Welcome to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. Wanzee is back this week to introduce Alison and Nan with a fantastic candid insight into international hockey coaching. You can follow Alison on Twitter with her handle at AlisonAnan4 and keep up to date with the national team at Orania Hockey. Here's Wanzee. It's uh, really exciting to have um, Alison Annan on board for this podcast because her record, uh, hockey record, her reputation is quite extraordinary. She's been one of Australia's greatest ever women players, one of the great players in the world. It's all written, it's all there in stats, but I saw a lot of it and uh, I can certainly vouch for that. And then, of course, coaching career, quite outstanding. To do Alison justice, I did go and do my Wikipedia. I must go and do my own Wikipedia and alter a few things because this one, this Wikipedia is pretty cool. Um, we've got a couple of gold medals, as you do, for 96 in Atlanta and Sydney, Olympic gold medals playing for Australia, her real country, not this Holland stuff that she now calls herself, a duchy. A couple of World Cups, 94 and, and 98. These are all pretty hard things to uh, to win, if you didn't realise. Four Champions Trophies, which also are very hard to win. Commonwealth Games, Junior World Cups, lots and lots of trophies, quite extraordinary. Um, as a team, you know, she played in successful era, and, of course, her individual awards are quite remarkable. Player of the Year a couple of times, World Player of the Year a couple of times, um, and uh, Australian you know, champion many times. So I wouldn't do it justice, but it's um, Australian Sports Hall of Fame, which is uh, you know, the iconic um, institution within Australia. So it is quite remarkable. And as I introduced that, Alison, I mean, the... Um, you think about if you do ever reflect back, a young girl coming out of the western suburbs of Sydney to where you're standing today, coaching now, you know, one of the best sporting teams in the world, certainly um, in the hockey world, the best women's team clearly for a number of years and, and uh, one of the great sporting teams. It's, it's a remarkable journey. It has been a rocky road, but it has been one, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career and growing up to have come across the right people at the right time who, you know, just saw a, you know, a, a young girl from Campbelltown who maybe had a bit of talent and need a little, little bit of direction and just, you know, invested their time and energy in me. And I'm forever grateful for those people. And I think that, you know, if they I didn't cross their paths that I might not be where I am today. So that's one of the things that uh, is very dear to me that I was very fortunate and something that I really try and put back into the players and athletes that I come across when I, you know, when I, when I see them and I, I meet them. Uh, maybe there is someone in there that might be in the same state that, that I was in and just need a little bit of direction. So that, you know, that inspires me each day to, to get better and be better and you know, put back into the sport. Yeah, I think people see statistics and uh, there's always a story behind the, the stats and standing on the dice and everyone's got their story. But I think yours is quite incredible. Um, you know, it's all well and good for 
yeah, meet the right people in your journey, but you've obviously got to have the self-drive and the, um, you know, the, the confidence at the right times and the, and the toughness, resilience, all those cliched words. But to take that journey um, and to not only just play some good sport, but to be the best player in the world is, is remarkable. And it's, um, you know, I, mean, I watched you a lot and, and enjoyed watching you play. Um, it was hard not to. And every great women's player in, in hockey, if you're talking about the real greats, the Amars and others, they're all a bit different. And, um, you know, I think you were a classic Australian hockey player. You had everything, a true Australian. I mean, you were tough and, and skillful, scored goals, made plays, um, all those things. But before we go too much further into all that, I'm going to sound like I'm just here um, talking about you, embarrassing you. But um, I'm interested just right now, you've just come back into training as the coach of the Women's Netherlands team. Um, you know, I've been reading, following the press. It's it's reasonably exciting news from a sports point of view because everybody around the world, certainly here in Melbourne, you know, sports capital of the world, um, is, is anxiously keen to get back, whether you're a child, a professional sportsman or whoever you are, you're keen to get back on the sporting field. Holland is starting to move that way and you've just restarted training with uh, obviously Tokyo 21 in mind. Yeah, look, you know, we, uh, we were one of the first teams uh, in the hockey world uh, to stop being able to play. You know, we were we stopped playing as one of the first countries. So we're happy to, of course, be back getting back onto the field. They've, uh, there's the, the kids here are playing back at the clubs. Uh, there's different protocols for different age groups uh, just being put in place in the last two weeks. And I think heard that next week they'll be changing the protocols again. Um, which will give more more room, you know, more space. Yeah, so Holland's um, has restarted the hockey, and I guess you've relaunched your your program again for Tokyo and you know, around the world. People are anxiously watching sport, hoping it resumes. Uh, how's it been going this last week since you've um, resumed training in uh, in the Netherlands? Yeah, look, you know, being I think the girls uh, as one of the first teams that stopped playing, you know, we weren't allowed to. We went into isolation very early uh, early on. So getting back onto the field is exciting. I think they had a, in total six to eight weeks, eight weeks of no hockey, not being able to play. All the clubs were closed for a period of six, eight weeks. I think it was eight weeks in the end. Um, so getting back onto the pitch has been fantastic. The youth have started to train with less uh, protocols, with less restrictions. You know, we've got a lot of restrictions put in place to be able to train. A limited number of players per half per training um, with a limited number of staff around the field, uh, which uh, had to be put in place to be able to train, um, you know, six per half with one trainer, three metre distancing on the field, uh, no duels, no games, which is good for individual skills, which is not such a bad thing. Those sorts of things have been put in place uh, for us to be able to train. So it's been exciting. It's been new for us all uh, with a lot of restrictions on what we can and cannot do, um, which has meant that, you know, us as coaches have had to be very um, creative uh, in our, yeah, our training methods. Yeah, it must be yeah, an amazing challenge. And I guess people will be looking to this team and what you do, you know, if it goes well, then, of course, hopefully restrictions will continue to uh, loosen up, assuming that the country also is going well. Um, before we go too much further, like into your coaching career, which I didn't actually go to after going through your playing record, but I will make sure I do that because that's been just as extraordinary. But let's just quickly jump back to your junior career. So you started at the western suburbs of Sydney, which has produced a lot of good hockey players and still continues to, um, both men and women, which itself is quite remarkable. And a lot of it is about structure and facilities and people that's where you came from with your hockey and it's probably um i can't imagine it was the easiest uh, environment did you grow up on an artificial pitch or how did your junior hockey career play out no we started in downtown campbelltown <laughs> at ravy road hockey fields and that was all grass 
Um, so I started out on, uh, you know, the grass fields and um, the Sydney competition was in place, uh, but you had to be extraordinary, you know, you had to be very good to, good to be able to play there. And in those days, it's, it was an hour and a hour and a half to get there. So uh, it was more a dream to be able to play there than to be able to get there. And um, having an immobile mother who wasn't, you know, she, she wasn't able to get move about a lot and my father worked so it was I was very self-dependent of getting out there in the end when I when I could get out there which meant that I learned a lot of skills that helped me later on in life to be able to you know make the decisions and become independent and uh, get things done that needed to get done uh, I had again you know I had a lot of people that uh, helped me along the way and if if I didn't have them they wouldn't be where I was now but uh, Campbelltown is provided us with a basis, uh, and uh, John Robinson was my coach back then. He provided me with a sort of home base where I could grow. And um, going into Sydney and training with Greg Corbin and Beth Beth Shea and and, and Judy Lang, uh, playing alongside of Loretta Dorman and Kim Small, uh, you know, I, I I did have a very you know I did I did have a bit of a luxury growing up being being surrounded by those sorts of players. And as a you know kid from Campbelltown, that's that's pretty big. Well, they were uh, names that I remember, and of course, New South always had a pretty powerful, um, you know, both country and city presence, uh, men and women. So I guess you needed those those role models. Um, very different sort of setup to, to to kids that ride their bikes to hockey in Holland, I'm sure. But um, we all come from different paths, and um, that's what makes it. I guess once you're out there on the field competing, no one always knows your background and then you progressed into New South Wales teams when did you debut for the Australian say senior team when was can you remember that occasion and where it was and how you sort of got into the team I my first game was the last because back then we didn't you know we had substitution and not sorry interchange as it was you know limited number of players that could play and I remember I was in Tasmania against Korea and I played the last five minutes, and I think I touched the ball maybe twice, and that was uh, that was my my first game, and that was in '91. Uh, I think it was in June of '91 or July of '91 that I played my first uh, first game for Australia, and, uh, and, and you know everything went pretty quick, and that's I guess again I was lucky to, you know Brian Glencross did take take a big chance with a young kid back then uh, so I, I guess my career went very quickly uh, playing with the New South Wales team and being guided by the right people and being given the opportunity to progress as I did so you know my under I, I, under 18s uh, here we have under 18s in Australia we don't have that so we, you know, we move you you're in the under 21 national program and then from there moved pretty quickly on to the senior program and then of course after 92 um Charlesworth Rick Charlesworth took over if I'm right and he obviously became a big influence I've read some of the comments and and they don't surprise me at all that you know he could see obviously this talented kid coming through and uh, you know he, he's always been about you know maximizing potential and driving people and what have you so he could see what um what was in you and and clearly it worked yeah he was he was very critical and I actually spoke to him last week for for the first time in a few years. Uh, he was on a Zoom session and uh, with uh, with an American coaching club, and I jumped on and said hello. And it was, so it was good to see him. But you know, I, I guess Rick was uh, very hard in his ways, and uh, you know, I, I guess when I back then I looked at him as never been. You know, I was, I was never good enough. Um, it always had to be better. And on the one side of things, you know, that's that's very good and you need to have someone who inspires you to be better and 
and uh, but there's you know I guess looking back that I I also looked for a balance. I needed to feel comfortable that I was doing well, and I guess you know with him being so good and uh, inspiring as he is uh, back then, and the the less mature person I was back then was also very critical of him as a coach instead of maybe just looking back and taking a step back and thinking he's doing this because he wants me to be the best I can be and that's something that I take away now today to ensure that I do that with my own players here. Yeah, it is all part of a journey when you look back at different things and at the age we're all at and how we react. But I guess you, as long as you take learnings from it and and, and um, use that however you can, it's out of interest. If you've got a player now as a coach that mightn't be performing to the potential that you know they've got, not not from um, ability but just effort or doing all you know doing all the right things, have you mastered the art of cajoling rather than driving? Perhaps the the empowerment rather than the the dictatorship. How, how have you found that challenge? Yeah, look, we have a, a player in our national program now who's extremely good, but just doesn't work hard to be the best she can be, and is she's almost satisfied with being good and not being, you know, we're not wanting to be the best, um, which disbalances herself and the team. So you know, we've tried different methods, and I'm more about trying different methods, you know, I've been critical, I've been helpful, I've been, you know, caring and, uh, you know, setting goals for together and, uh, you know, I've tried different methods and I guess, you know, nothing worked for what I was trying. So uh, in the end, I just had to drop her for a while and that seemed to work. <laughs> so just, uh, you know, pull it pulling her out of the program yeah just pulling her out of the program and saying look you know this is not this is not our culture this is not the way we do it so if you 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 know you need to choose you're going to be a part of it and do your best or not so you know I guess it's for me it's every it's you know every day also about learning we don't know everything as coaches we don't know everything as as players and we need to do it together and uh, I guess that's the way I look at it now and I guess that's also what Rick did back when he was coaching us, um, but I just wasn't – I was maybe blinded because I thought he was too critical. Yeah, and you you were a naturally competitive young player, intelligent player, you know, knew a fair bit anyway, so you had your own beliefs, but it's all, all part of the journey. Um, before I sort of move from the playing side, the one question I had of interest for me was, you know, the, the women's team that you played with that era was, was exceptional, had a, an exceptional era, a bit like the Dutch women's team at the moment, and, and won a lot of tournaments, um, you know, had a really fantastic reputation. And, and they're remarkably driven, cohesive, and um, you know, lots of reasons that that occurred here in Australia at the moment. I'm sure it's in other professional sport around the world, but yeah, you know, it looks like there's some real issues in professional sport, whether it's rugby, whether it's Aussie rules, some of the cricket behaviour. Um, but some of these professional teams, you know, you, you'd have to sort of question how well they're behaving. Not all of them. I mean, my my football team, Richmond, have done a great job. Apart from being successful, they seem to really, from a behaviour and a, and a team bonding sort of thing they really seem to have found a new a new way a new mantra but at the moment even due to some of this uh, social isolation as the professional teams are trying to come back there's been some blow-ups and 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 they're struggling but it, it makes me you know look back at that women's team and think gee you know without the the money to to motivate them they're, they're solely driven by success and traveling the world and being being the best you know it's quite remarkable uh, and and i think about that a lot of amateur sports olympic sports that we were lucky to see you know, they, they, they've, they've been able to do it, you know, without that carrot of monetary reward and behave in an incredible way. Do you have any thoughts about that? And do you ever sort of reflect on, you know, you look at that that, that Australian women's team and in, in how incredibly um, impressive they were as a unit? 
Yeah, look, to be honest, that's something that's uh, something that I discuss quite regularly here in Holland. The club system in Holland, they pay money to uh, have the have the players play at their club. Uh, some clubs pay a generous amount, and some clubs don't. Don't. Uh, and I just I've mo- I've been talking a lot here in Holland uh, to our hockey association about the fact that that's not the way we we want to be moving into. I think that. We're not a, a professional sport. We're an amateur sport that are actor and, and, and live as elite athletes, which is different to being a professional sport. There's no money generated from our sport um, commercially. Uh, so we need to be careful that we're not creating commercial athletes in an amateur sport, meaning that the money's leading their decisions. And um, I think that that is something that's gotten in the way of possible decisions and behaviours uh, of athletes. Um, not what not needing to be the best that they can be to uh, to play the sport. So you know, it's definitely something that uh, is here and apparent in Holland. Uh, that's very concerning, uh, and it's concerning because our sport needs people that love the game and are passionate about it, and are not playing it just because they can fill their uh, fill their pockets. Yeah, I think it's a challenge, even just at you know club level. Yeah, you know, always has been to a degree, but it feels. Uh, again, now it's um, people moving clubs for perhaps the wrong reasons they're playing the game. But, you know, if I think back to certainly the, the male Dutch side of my era, you know, a number of the, the team and probably still the same, you know, were studying a lot of the time, not that people have to study to be successful, but, you know, they were they were certainly balanced in terms of their approach. They loved the hockey. It was passionate um, uh, for them. It was very important for them, but you knew that they had careers and um, they seemed to be pretty balanced. Guys off the field, I'm not so sure that's been um, the case. If you looked at a lot of the professional sports that probably aren't as highly paid as some of those European soccer teams and others. So it's just a I think it's come to a bit of a crisis here, and certainly in Australia. And um, maybe this, um, I guess, the the money coming out of sport in Australia is going to be a bit of a reality check. Um, now, to the coaching side, which I didn't give you due credit at the start, because I got waylaid by reading through your Wikipedia. Now, um, so you finished playing sort of after the Sydney Olympics, another gold medal um, in Sydney, and then went across to Holland, uh, some club coaching, and then you got to the national team. Um, before we sort of go into explore all of that, did you sort of naturally think, as you know, one of the best players in the world, that coaching was a, a logical career move? Did you fall into it? Did you plan to do it? Um, I could imagine with your hockey brain that it was a you know, a natural thing about understanding the game. But of course, with coaching, there's a lot more to it. It's understanding people as much as, uh, as, much as understanding the game. Um, how, how did that all happen and, and how did you find it? You know, I think early on, particularly because of the people that I was surrounded with when I was growing up, I always knew that I wanted to put back into the sport what was put into me. Uh, so that was my real drive to become a coach. And so it's something definitely always wanted to do, you know, with Beth Shea and Judy and Greg Corbin and Mick Kell, John Robinson. They're all, you know, Brian Glencross, Rick. Frank, you know, they're all names that have people that have invested in me and, and helped me become the person that I am today. Uh, so it's always something that's uh, and 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 let me see the world. You know, I've been I've been fortunate enough to be in a great team and travelled the world and seen a lot of things. So I guess from a young age, I really wanted to coach. And I I guess uh, when I came to Holland, I didn't expect to stay in Holland. That was definitely you know I didn't expect to live here for the rest of my life. I did expect to go home, uh, so that was that was something that is different. But be, being a coach is something that I've always wanted to do. I thought very early when I stopped playing that I could be a coach straight away, you know, because I played and I played in a great team and I had a great coach. I 
always say that I've had the best hockey coaching course that I would ever have because I was coached under Rick and I thought that I could be, you know, a coach straight away and I was so wrong. I couldn't have had been far further away from the truth. In what way, what were the things that you you look back at now? Was it about handling people? What, what was the hardest thing, if you look back at it now, that you, that you weren't ready for? Uh, I wasn't ready for handling people. I wasn't structured enough. I wasn't able to, and I was I was coaching a different culture. So I, you know, I came to Holland, and you know, we had I came from a successful team, and so my belief was what we did with that team, you can, you should do here because that works. But it's a different culture. Uh, they communicate differently. Uh, I was also at the end of my career, so I had gained a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge of the game and was talking at that level to players that were just starting their career. And so I, was, I wasn't communicating at the same level. So they were hearing my words but weren't understanding what I was saying. And my expectation is that they were understanding exactly what I was saying because I was saying that. It wasn't the poor Australian accent, was it? <laughs> no, sometimes it was. <laughs> and then it was my broken Dutch, so that was the other thing, you know. But I just, I guess early on, I did lean too much on the language side of things as well. You know, you don't understand me because my Dutch is not good enough, or your English is not good enough. Instead of realizing that I was trying to put the Australian culture into the Dutch culture that they weren't ready for, and it's not possible to do. And I was coaching as a player instead of coaching as a coach. Um, so after a while, I re- I did uh, take a step back. I moved away from coaching and spent a few years uh, managing some companies to learn management skills, to learn communication, to just grow as the not the player but the person. Um, and then then I really started becoming a coach. And I guess the last, definitely the last, I would say the last six years, I have learned so much about coaching and I've learned so much about myself and about coaching players. And to that, you know, to the, to that, even today, you know, I'm learning different things. Uh, how communicate? How do you how do you communicate with people when they're in a Corona tide, where a period where they're you know they're a, a, scared to go outside but you know coming to training that's different how do you do that to go back a step so you mentioned you mentioned some companies was part of that when you spent some time at the Cruyff Institute uh, the Johan Cruyff Institute do you want to talk to that period of your, of your time and, and what that was about because whilst I'm old enough and sports mad enough to idolize Johan Cruyff there wouldn't be that many there'll be a few younger people on the um, including my son who doesn't understand that there, uh, uh, there were good good sportsmen in my time, but he was just a pure artist as a as a soccer player to watch, and he epitomised the Dutch. Um, still, their, their hockey now and their soccer then, I guess. So. Yeah, look, I I managed, uh, I started managing a, a, an elite a top sport community uh, sort of city. Uh, I was manager of a city here in in the top sport, the elite sport section. Uh, then I moved on to the Crafe Institute where we were. I was responsible for um, a sport management uh, masters, a coaching masters, and um, diverse uh, coaching um, courses within uh, clubs or within uh, communities. So we did a community course. I worked with him, uh, not with him. He was he, he was the name giver name giver of the, the company. Um, but he, you know, he gave input, uh, and he was very much involved in the uh, the, pro- the progress of the of the company. 
Um, and I did learn there a lot because, you know, that, that coaching course we had to create, uh, the sport management course we had to create um, to be able to put out there on, on under his name. So, I, you know, I spent a, time, a bit of time there. I think I was the manager there four or five years before I um, – moved away and spent a very short period of time as a director of a, um, another company, um, but I didn't enjoy that very much, so I, I ended up leaving. And just out of interest, the Dutch soccer-hockey connection, I, I asked Max Caldos in Melbourne a couple of years ago, just out of interest, did did he use much, You know, did they share ideas? And he, his answer was quite surprising to me. He said, uh, nowhere near as much as you'd think. And he said, I watch AFL football each week and uh, your team, the Richmond Tigers, which did surprise me given um, my team wasn't going that well at the time. But uh, I'm sure that's not the normal answer. The, the the soccer and hockey, there must be some historical crossover. Would someone like Cruyff have had you know reasonable knowledge and interest of the, the hockey life in Holland? It's pretty hard not to, I guess. Uh, look, uh, <laughs> Johan was a master of knowing everything. Um, and I spent and I spent a number of times with him watching games with the national team. Oh, wow. uh, I went to games with him, so I, you know, I went to the World Cup with him. Uh, I was uh, he came to when we had a tournament in Spain with the national team. He came uh, to the games, and went out to dinner, and I was lucky enough to watch a game with him in Barcelona. So I uh, was able to drive with him to the game and. He had his special parking place in the car park and uh, he had his special seating. So I was able to sit next to him during a game against Barcelona as well. So I guess I, I saw uh, and Johan in, in different environments and in each environment he was open about sharing his knowledge about sport. But he was very much about the movement of the game, uh, not so much about the skill sets, but how do you, you know, how do you create chances and in space and time and um, and that's the base really basic but yeah it was you know uh, and each time I, I remember one time I, I asked him for advice I was struggling with our men's um, team of Amsterdam of I was saying look we're doing simple things but they're just not simple enough to get you know a flow in the training and uh, he asked me what the drill was, and I explained it to him that there were you know I, there were six simple passes in the in the, in the in, in the drill and he said well that's not simple because there's six passes he said make it simpler I said how do you make it simpler I said that's just a reception and a pass he said well don't pass it six times pass it three times that was his answer <laughs> where we look for maybe a little bit more variety in our training and that sort of stuff he said you know the simple things and I, I always knew that and I always believed it but hearing it from him you know the simple things are the most difficult things to be to be able to do so all the kids that go out there and trainers that create these phenomenal drills that are complex and got so many different aspects on them you know it takes half the training for the kids to understand what we're doing so you've lost half the training's time you know so if you watch the national team of our, our national team train it's very basic because we want to train the way we play. We want to, you know, we want to keep it simple. And I guess uh, when Johan said that, I was, you know, <laughs> pulled, pulled pulled my hair out because I thought, yeah, that's that's simple thought. But it's so true. 
So when I watch the, the Dutch women's team play, it's like any great team you watch play, they look like um, all the characteristics you'd expect them to be described. They're, they're physically fit. They're, um, they move the ball well. It looks fun. Um, uh, that's obviously things don't always go that way. But from the outside, when you watch them and they're, and they're playing well, which is a lot of the time, yeah, that's how it appears. And clearly that takes a lot of work. Interested in, in what, with your training, uh, without giving away too many secrets, but uh, you talk about keeping things simple, but but the game is made you know, up of a lot of decision-making um, and, and obviously the smarter players um, you'll pick in the right positions um, that can make good decisions. But do you spend a lot of time on, on getting better in your drills um, at decision-making um, or is it just pure execution of repetitive skill sets? What, what are your views around, I guess, the differing styles? Because I've certainly been exposed to both over my journey and the truly, the coaches you love, I found, you know, could really help you, you know, get better at, um, you know, stuff that was around match play, decision-making, um, you know, not that the skills weren't important, they were, but it was almost, for me, secondary. How did the Dutch, to me, look like they they make great decisions a lot of the time or they certainly put the, the people in the right spots for those uh, for that to happen? I, I guess there's no secrets in sport. I really don't believe there's secrets in sport. And I'm saying this because I want to try and be open and, I'll, you know, I'll share anything about the way we train because it's not about what we put on put out there. It's about how you perceive it, how you do it, how do you coach it. So there's so many aspects that are, you need to add on to make something successful. Oh, most of our trainings are open. People can come and watch them. It does, you know, that's, it's not, that's not the secret. There is no secret. If you share it, everyone gets better. If everyone gets better, everyone gets uh, motivated to become better. You know, get them better. So the, the 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 I guess you know, the boundaries are being greatened, and um, so in our training we just do very simple things. We start every single training with 25, 20 to twenty five minutes of basic skills. That's it: passing, receiving, passing, receiving at speed, different receptions. Uh, that's that's standard in our training. Then we will spend twenty five to thirty minutes on decision making drills. And then we'll spend 30 minutes on small games, standard, every training. We don't train longer than an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and 30 minutes. So you will never see us train for two hours on the field. We never do it. Standard. That's our training. You've completely confused me because I just I assumed that the Dutch just spent two hours doing penalty corners and they did nothing else. So there you go. I've learnt, I've learnt something there. Um no. Just the areas of, for me, just we'll touch on, if you don't mind talking a little bit about. So so tactically, each, you know, the player and the coach with the team, um, you know, some of the areas of the game, tactics, the mental side, the technical side of things, the physical side of things. From a Dutch point of view, um, you know, maybe it's not that different to Australia, but can you talk those four areas, um, you know, tactically, the Dutch, the, how do you see, are they, are they having come from Australia, what are the major differences in the way they play from a tactical point of view? Um, and then I'll talk about the other areas in a minute. Or are they all becoming – do you think around the world teams are getting more similar? What are your thoughts around that? There's been a sense of uh, following examples. Uh, so uh, if uh, one team does something, everyone does it. So years ago uh, when the, the, the Australian men won the World Cup, they played the World Cup pretty much man-to-man. A lot of the other teams weren't playing man-to-man. So in all of a sudden, every men's team started playing man-to-man all over the whole field uh, because Australia did it well. And you see that there's, I guess, uh, maybe it's not so much less creativity, but it's what's what works, we'll do that too. 
that means that there's some sort of sense of for us as coaches to uh, try and be creative to be that change so that people will follow and as long as people are following they'll always be behind so I guess the trend I would say the trend is in tactically is what's what's the latest thing that works and let's do that Argentina women started a few years ago with a different press. So they had two, uh, the left and the right strikers were wider and the two centre players were dropped behind the two strikers and it was sort of like a bowl shape. No one had done that. Now you see teams doing that everywhere. But, I, you know, why did – my question is before you would even think about doing that is why did Argentina do that? But people are following that. People are doing what other teams did without really thinking – well, I'm saying – I'm assuming not thinking about it, so that's not a – that's you know, that's an assumption – but why did they do it? And is it necessary to change it for to work with your team? And would you make, throughout a tournament, say a pro league, would you make subtle tactical changes at times? Or have you sometimes in a tournament made radical changes, you know, in terms of how you press and different things or within games? So you, you talk about keeping things simple. Has that evolved for you? Do you change things more often than you used to throughout a game? We uh, have five or six different press forms that are structurally the same, but the approach is a little different and maybe the starting positions are different. And that is used within different – we use that uh, with against different teams. Uh, and it can mean uh, during the Europeans last year, we changed a press two weeks beforehand to see if it works and it worked and the players wanted to use it and – you know, I remember in the final of the Europeans, they asked me before the game, can we use this press? And we'd only done it two weeks. But because the structure is generally the same, just the, the I guess, the, the starting, the, the way you start it and the, 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 first, the first initial phase is different, it seems different, but it's not so different. Um, so we will change, yeah, we, we'll change that. We'll change it in a game. Uh, will change, uh, you know, we, uh, I remember last year before the Pro League, uh, I wanted to try a different sort of press form uh, because I believed that it had cut down our, the amount of time we were, we were having to run without the ball. So we were spending a lot of energy running a press and having less energy when we got the ball. So I wanted to create more energy on the ball and less energy use uh, off the ball. There's a few veterans players I play with could help you with those tactics, having to run less. <laughs> they know that very well. Um, yeah. The, um, yeah. the physical physical side of the game, um, the physical stuff, I started to think about, and even the mental side, do you, it sort of begs the question for me, how do you sort of use outside help, whether it's you know, obviously physios, but, but preparing the team physically um, for different campaigns, um, psychologists, nutritionists, how does that sort of work in the Dutch system? Are they full-time or do you call them in? when you need them? I have one full-time assistant and the rest are all part-time. So in, in Holland, it's completely different. And I have had this my, this full-time assistant for six months. Uh, before that, I had uh, all part-timers. So I've never had really a full-time staff, uh, which is completely different than Australia. Australia have uh, a number of full-time staff uh, members. Uh, my physiologist that I had uh, works uh, one day in the week with us. If, my, if that, I have a strength and conditioner trainer that's he's employed by the Olympic Committee and he's you know able to be with us a number of hours in the week. Uh, it's different. The psychologist we don't have full time 
uh, we use a different structure, so we use it on a need a need base needed basis. Uh, we have a clinical psychologist and a sports psychologist, and we have a head psychologist. So we have three. Uh, the head psychologist is responsible for the reception. Of, he'll receive the question sort of thing. You know, the player says, look, this is my problem, and he will decide whether it's a clinical or a sports psychologist uh, needed for a sports psychologist, and we do the group sessions with him. So we have a very steady uh, psychological base, but it's not full-time. Physiology, a head physiologist with a, with a sports psychologist, a, a sport, uh, sport strength and conditioning. Uh, with the pro league, we have diff, two managers, three physios, that sort of the two doctors that share the, share the load. Technically, I have two assistants and an, an analyst, and that's it. And that's you know, it's a nutritionist is in there somewhere. So yeah, quite remarkable when you think you know this is one of the great sporting teams in the world. I, I was lucky enough last year to said before to, to go and watch the pro league finals in Amstelveen. I hadn't been there for thirty years and took my two girls with the hope that it would be what it was thirty years ago. Well, it surpassed that, and it was such a <laughs> great thing that as a lover of hockey to see the stadium still rocking and rolling. Um, yeah, the hockey was obviously fantastic. The crowd was um, as much you know, a part of it as, as the hockey. Um, does that must be just brilliant? I mean, if there's one thing you'd hope young hockey players and old hockey players get to see is some hockey in, in, in Holland, particularly at Amstelveen, particularly when the Dutch national team is playing, hopefully Australia in a game. But, you know, it must be uh, just fantastic sometimes. I, I could see you and the, you know, the excitement of the competition and playing well and winning. You, you can't help but enjoy that. That would be as good as anything, you know, in all the great stuff that you've been exposed to playing hockey at Amstelveen, you know, with the Dutch national team, you know, at the best level, you know, on the bright sunshine. Is it, is it, can you beat that? Yeah, look, it's absolutely fantastic. And I guess, you know, the one thing that uh, I would love Australia uh, to do uh, is the mo- when I, when I watch those games, of course, it's exciting. There's a lot of people there, but you what, what, what makes it exciting and what makes it real fun is that at halftime, all of the children are on the field playing hockey, so they're not just there to they're not just there to watch, you know. And if I look back at, at Australia, they don't go on the pitch, they're not allowed in the circle. There's restrictions everywhere, but in Holland, they're on the pitch at halftime. Uh, you ask them to get off, they're off within thirty seconds. So it's sort of like this family environment that's that makes it fun and it makes it exciting, and it you know really binds them with our sport. Yeah, I have seen that the times I've been there. And I do notice that every second kid goes to the circle and drag flicks a ball under the crossbar. So it's, it is different to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> the the uh, hockey in Holland, I've talked about it. It is still a great place. I hope it continues that way. Do you see, just a quick sort of comment about the world game, and we could waffle on for hours probably, but as every sport deals with this corona and what it means financially and what it means for competition and, you know, grassroots um, development programs. It's a bit scary, a bit frightening, but it's um, yeah, it's a pretty important time for hockey. I mean, we've been probably concerned for a number of years. We haven't grown in a competitive landscape around the world as we'd wish. I mean, they're trying things, but now that the, the world is shrinking, it's, a, it's another challenge again. Holland being such a important part of world hockey how you sort of seen I know your job's to coach and get a gold medal but you're a lover of the game how have you sort of feeling things are at the moment have you given any thought to that to be honest I haven't given it much thought I guess for us here what I've really thought about and what what I really realized is with us going back to training um 
I, I after our training, I got a lot of messages sent from uh, from around the world saying how great it was to see that we were back playing the sport. Uh, the hockey was back on the, you know, getting back into the game, and uh, that it, it gave them hope that it had it, it gave other people hope that they'd also be following very soon, and that means something. That because you know that means that people are alert. It means that people are aware that, that you know, and that they want to get back into the game. And I guess maybe not being able to play the game will give people a little bit more hunger to want to get on the field and play. Yeah, I think it's a great point. For sure, it really is. Um, let's just quickly touch on um, Tokyo. So, uh, assuming it sort of plays out, and you've got to you got to make that assumption when you're planning programs. What does the next twelve months uh, look like at this early stage? Obviously, it's week by week at the moment. But if it all goes well, you know, do you have things starting to get penciled in to prepare? I guess this has never been done before, so it must be pretty um, pretty tricky. No, my calendar is empty. The next four weeks are planned in. But for the rest, we have absolutely no idea when or where uh, or if the Pro League will be played. Um, the Olympics, Olympic Games are penciled in uh, and that's it. Uh, the rest is just yeah. not, you know, I guess there's hope, but there's, there's nothing yet penciled in. No, and it, it's not even frustrating. Yeah. No, look, it is a remarkable time. And it must be, I guess, every sport, every Olympic sport that does you know, work on that four-year cycle, it's um, incredibly frustrating when you nearly got to the to the start line to have it um, moved is um, incredibly tough. Um, and now you're a Dutch national. To sort of look at the last little area I was going to just cover off, thinking back to Australia, you, you clearly your life's now in, in Holland, but when you look back at Australia, you've mentioned a few times you, you know, what it gave you in terms of coming through as a junior and playing the national team, obviously fond memories. Um, how, how does it sort of, um, when, you, when you look at Australia from a sports point of view, playing, you probably got used to it now, coaching against a team that you're a huge part of your life. Is that still a little odd when you um, when you line up and the national anthems are, are playing and you're standing on the, on the pitch? How, do, how does that work? Well, I sing both national anthems and I'm a dual national, and I'm a dual citizen, so I have both citizenships. You know, I, I it's in the. I remember the the first time I was okay. This is weird, but it since my family's here and the kids have been born, it's not weird anymore. It's the way it is, and I guess the one thing that 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 niggles is that, you know, the Australian team have struggled uh, for a number of years, and uh, you know, there's a lot of potential there. So I guess that's something that's niggled a bit. I'd love to come home and, and, and coach the team, um, but being surpassed uh, a few times uh, and, and having this job now, yeah, yeah, it's disappointing, but I guess, uh, you know, uh, hopefully ever, sometime ever in the future I might be able to get back and get a job in the Australian hockey, team, hockey scene again to, you know, come back home because hockey, you know, Australia is all, will always be my home. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. I think, look, you'd um, clearly be – uh, extremely you know, welcome home from an Australian point of view, but I guess um, in some ways the Dutch story has been a pretty nice um, way to, if you had to miss out on a, an Australian Guernsey uh, coaching the, the one of the best teams, sporting teams in the world, is not the not the worst thing to have to spend your your week doing. But look, it's uh, from to finish with from from our point of view. Thank you so much for giving up uh, time. I know it's a uh, I've said a number of times, strange time. You've got lots going on, but really appreciate just some insights, having a chat about hockey, because most of the people listening to this will be well the majority will be hockey lovers whether they're in Australia or around the world um, it's fabulous to hear that the whole story is incredible but to get some insights into someone coaching a team at that level I congratulate you too not just for your career but the coaching to watch uh, last year was just a, a pleasure to be there to see it um, it was great to 
Australia actually you know, put on a reasonable, a great performance against a great team, and it made for um, you know a great experience from my selfish point of view. But you know, all Australians that love their hockey, I think it's a great story to tell to remind people. Hate hate to think you'd ever be forgotten by just because you're not here. Because the um, uh, it's it's an incredible Wikipedia record, and I think the way you've gone about it in a sort of a humble, intelligent, competitive way is so Australian. Yes, you've got a bit of Dutch in you now, but you can <laughs> tell the way you go about things is all the all the attributes that Australia love in their sports, men and women. So, you know, huge congratulations, huge thank you from us for, for doing it because you would get lots of requests. So um, thanks, Al. We wish you all the best. We really hope you can get there on that silver medal dice next to Australia in um, <laughs> Tokyo when it does happen. Um, that would be fabulous. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, heard, you heard that. Yeah. Nothing wrong with the silver. No. <laughs> Well, I did. Um, I did watch that Rio final, and I got to say, I've seen some, uh, you know, being involved in the men's team, some unlucky losses. But I think you you may have been a little bit stiff on that day. If I saw a goalkeeper get in the way uh, for the for GB, I'm sure you still wouldn't sleep at night mm-hmm. thinking about that one. And before we finish, tell me, I've read about. Just let's finish on this happy note. I've read about a weird story. This is quite a funny story where you sort of forgot where you were during a game. Do you want to talk to, to that story? You probably had to talk about it a few times now. Uh, yeah, no, no I, I, yeah, I didn't forget where I was. I knew exactly. Yeah, no, I, I had a blackout. Yeah, that was uh, one of my biggest learning mistakes ever. Um, what game was it? That was the semi-final. And it was in forty degrees heat, and I no, that was Olympics. And I um, I looked at the clock, and I knew the game was it was weird. I knew the game was over, and then I looked at the clock, and it, I went blank. And it, at the clock, it said fourth quarter, fifteen minutes. And I'm thinking we've just played it, and I just went totally blank. I blocked out, and uh, yeah, it was a weird, uh, weird. Uh, never had it ever in my life. I will say that it'll never happen again because I've created an environment around me to ensure that that will never happen again and it taught me to take care of myself as a coach you just got to you know so hyper around the whole intensity of the competition is that what you put it down to or was it a, a, a hydration issue what was the problem did you ever I, find out? yeah look I spent nine months because I was I, I you know I took the team over in October and uh, I when my idea was when I took the team over because the coach before got the got the sack, I had seven months, nine months in total in months, but almost less than three months contact with the players to prepare them for the Olympics. So I spent, you know, day in, day out, 20 hours a day working to inform myself to be able to coach this team to the best that they could be so I never thought that I was doing enough so I was always doing too much which meant I was not you know I wasn't drinking I wasn't eating I wasn't you know I uh, worked too hard um, didn't take care of myself during the Olympics I didn't take care of myself I was always looking for that one half percent that I just needed to stop looking for Um, and that was uh, a build up of all of that so that's you know that's a lesson for every coach that you've got to make sure that you're fit uh, in body and mind to make the right decisions and not have such a moment that it uh, you're doubting yourself and that you've de- you know I just had a blackout and it was weird. 
Yeah, well, that's uh, probably probably not the best note I should have finished on our, our chat, oh, but it was an interesting story, and I guess it just highlights how uh, demanding, you know, the the job can be, particularly when you're a you know perfectionist and uh, and a com- competitor. It does sound a bit like the that your men's co- uh, your, your coach of the team, Mr. Charlesworth, who would probably uh, often have had a few of those blackouts. I suspect with the intensity and uh, mm-hmm. the uh, chasing those one percenters. But look, your your career as a player uh, quite unparalleled as a coach now. Um, you know, quite remarkable and probably still just really uh, evolving and starting. So we wish you, thank you again, um, wish you all the best from a, uh, uh, a Dutch point of view. I'm sure Dutch playing, you know, being at the top of the hockey tree is only a good thing for the sport. So wish you all the best um, and thank good health so to you and your family um, through this crisis. You've been listening to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. We'd like to send a big thank you to our hosting team, our guests, and you, the listener, for your support. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is recorded and produced by Camberwell Hockey Club in Melbourne, Australia. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, please find us on Twitter at Camberwell underscore HC or see more information on our website, camberwell.hockey. See you next week.